What I'm going to do is going to be tangible. You're going to be able to see it. It's measurable how I'm going to increase the value of the ecosystem and the biodiversity. So I'm really excited about it. This is the first time I've ever kind of really talked about this quasi-publicly. So I'm, I'm glad for you to share this with the Prometheus crowd. I've been very excited about this guest for a long time. Today, we have a real legend, Kyle Bass, Chief Investment Officer of Heyman Capital and CEO of his new endeavor, Conservation Equity Management. One of his early successes was shorting the housing market, which was highlighted in the book, The Big Short. Since then, I've been a huge fan. It's no secret he is intimidatingly brilliant. His thoughts on the market, China, and the economy are incredible. I wanted to take a little bit of a different approach with this conversation, getting to know who Kyle really is, what inspires him, how he built his incredible career, and his hopes for the future. I love how he wants to invest in things that make him happy, investing in land while protecting and rehabilitating the environment, something that not only benefits investors, but the natural world and surrounding communities. Here is Kyle Bass. I'd love to start with kind of the beginnings of it all, like even back as early as you can remember when you were your son's age, even potentially, did you always have an inkling towards finance or macroeconomics or some of the things that you study today? No. So um, I grew up in a lower middle class family. My dad was the general manager at a hotel. So, you know, he made a decent salary, but, you know, growing up to where we we got to go out to eat about once a month and that was a big treat. Oh, wow. Uh, my parents never saved any money for college for me, you know, um, and so, and my parents were not financially astute whatsoever. Uh, my mom, my mom was amazing, an amazing woman who gave everything to me. Um, she was the first female sportscaster in Texas. She went to Stephen F. Austin University. She became one of the pinup ladies for American Airlines as their flight attendants when they had to be, you had to be a woman, you had to be under 120 pounds, you had to have perfect eyesight. Um, yeah, I can't even remember. Oh, you can't wear glasses, you know, all of these things. Oh, wow. Like, imagine yeah. if you saw that ad today, like American Airlines mm. put out of business. But <laughs> um, my my mother, my father met um, kind of through, you know, my dad flying and my mom being a flight attendant. And uh, again, never any call it proper financial acumen. Um, and, and so when I was growing up, I didn't have it. Uh, and when I got to college, I went to college on both an academic and a, and a springboard uh, diving scholarship. Oh, wow. So you were swimming and you were just like um, in high school and that's kind of what got you to college. No. So in high school, I still wasn't financially literate nor, or, or macro literate for that matter. I had great, great teachers in, the, in science and in math. I went to a public high school. Uh, my science teacher was amazing, and she really got me excited about chemistry uh, and and calculus. And so I I was very good on math and science. I was terrible at English. <laughs> um, so uh, when I took the SAT, I had a perfect math and science score, and I won't even tell you what my English score was, but it was bad. <laughs> uh, needless to say, um, I went into college with a, um, a an idea that I wanted to be a doctor because my mom was always someone who was kind of hypochondriacal and wanted to diagnose anything and everything that, that one ever had. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, my junior year, I had to take a, I had to take a non-major elective. And so I'd, I'd always been interested in financial markets, but never done anything. And I, I took a senior level options and futures class in the, in the undergrad business school. And I read the book, uh, the entire book in a week 
and uh, mm-hmm. and I changed my major at the end of the week. So it was oh, wow. the light went off. Like this is what I want to do. Wow. And was were you in a different major previous to that? Yeah, yeah, I was a chemistry major before that. Oh, amazing! So just like the that book about options trading made you just switch gears options and futures and the way that the math works and you know learning about black shoals learning about backwardation and contango and how how things were priced and how one could both make you know fortunes and lose fortunes it was uh it was a new world to me and then i just started voraciously reading um i read the market wizards both one and two i read all of tony robbins books when i was in college uh, the great news is Tony and I become friends and uh, oh, we actually invest together today, which is, uh, you know, a, a personal achievement of, of having him as a friend and, and doing yeah, he's incredible. Together. So I think it, 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 I credit it with this kind of in high school, I memorized things to get good scores on the tests and, uh, the light went off my junior year in college where I had an intense desire to learn. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a separation between kids that have a great resume and kids that are going to be winners in the world. Uh, And and I think that uh, in learning, having someone meeting people that have that intense desire to learn at all all times uh, is the key, I think, to success Mm -hmm. Uh, and in financial markets and in just about everything you do in life, you have to have that desire to learn. That's interesting. And then where did you go from there? So you you decided to shift gears, shift your major. And then how did the next four years of school kind of take shape in your, your life there? Yeah. So <clears throat> that was my junior year. So it was only two more years of school. Um, right when I got out of undergrad, I wanted to work on Wall Street. I had mm-hmm. no practical experience whatsoever. I wasn't in the business school, undergrad business school since freshman year. So I didn't have like an investment banking track because I was kind of late to the party. And so I started interviewing with global brokerage firms like Merrill Lynch and UBS and Payne Weber was still wow. back then and, and Prudential and all these different players. I probably had 15 interviews where they told me no. And really forget my, my one at my last interview at Prudential Securities. Uh, the guy said, you know, Kyle, look, we hire people that are, that are that are in a career that have contacts in a big Rolodex. Um, and so we don't hire undergrads. And he says, why should I hire you? And I said, because you'll really be sorry if you don't. <laughs> I said, it, it would probably be the worst decision you've made as a manager. And, um, you know, and, and again, I knew that I could functionally operate at a high level if someone just gave me the shot and he gave me the shot. And uh, oh, amazing. the funniest thing about it um, was, um, he asked me how much money you'd have to pay me. And remember I was, I was so broke. I couldn't even pay attention in college. Um, and so I went home and I got out a spreadsheet and I mapped my apartment rent, my car payment, my insurance, my food to the dollar. It came out to like $17,500 a year. And and I went back with him with a spreadsheet and I said, this is what you have to pay me. And he was like, he said, done. So my first salary was 17.5 and I was the happiest kid on the planet to even have a salary. So um, it's, it's just where it starts. Wow. That's so interesting. I like, of course you would go out and spreadsheet something out and then, you know, you probably didn't know you could have asked for way more, but. Um, I didn't pad anything. I yeah. looked back at my expenses over the last year and I knew what they were and. 
I said, this is what you'd have to pay me and I'm in. Amazing. So you must have a huge appreciation for this new world that you're entering, especially coming from, from nothing really. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the greatest day of my life when he hired me. And I, um, yeah, I became number one in my global training class. I had about 130 people around the uh, uh, nationwide. So nationwide, I had 130 people in my training class and became number one across the board. And, and again, just because it, it, all the numbers were there, you could compete and no one was going to outwork me. And um, it was, it was a lot of fun, but I, I learned after about a year and a half that I didn't want to um, help mom and pop with their dividends and their retirement. Um, I want to do something much larger. And so um, I called uh, around and I ended up talking with the person that ran the Bear Stearns office in Dallas. And I told him I wanted to, to work with hedge funds, event-driven funds. This is back in 1994. Oh, wow. Where, you know, no one knew what a hedge fund was and a $100 million fund was a big fund. Yeah. How did you learn about that world and get access to it? Reading every book I could ever read. I read you know, um, I read all, I read Soros's books. I read, again, I read every market-based book I could read. Mm-hmm. You seem to have a photographic memory from what I've... No, I have a, ter- <laughs> I have a terrible memory. I have to work hard at it. Um, really? Yeah. Now, yeah, you say it off Now that I'm getting like... older, it's even worse. So, you know, <laughs> I got to figure out how to stop the degradation. <laughs> I've been researching that too. I'll send you some ideas. Uh, so you started, so you decided to, you wanted to be, do something bigger. Your parents must've been insanely proud of you at this time, especially cause they were in such different worlds. Yeah. What did they think? But you know, when you read things like the alchemy of finance, which is, I, I credit as being one of the best books about, um, how markets work and how things, when they get to be two, three, four standard, standard deviations from the mean, that there has to be this this kind of a regression to the mean, and it was a really important combination of math, science, and and call it reality in the in the in the markets. And um, I, know, I think that's a great book for people to read, even to this day. Did you? What did your parents think when you were going through all of this? Were they supportive? Were they surprised that you took this path? Yeah, I mean, my parents were really hands off. My mom was hands on in keeping me in the lane. Yeah, mm-hmm. trying to keep me out of out of anything that was troublesome or problematic, but letting me kind of use my free will to do what I want to do. And so she was supportive in anything I did. Um, as far as moving forward in life, <clears throat> the people I met, you know, the people I surrounded myself with in college, one particular individual uh, was Will Van Lowe. Will's the CEO and, and founder of a firm called Quantum Energy Partners, mm-hmm. uh, probably the single most successful private equity firm in energy that's ever been, uh, that's ever lived. And Will and I were both, we, we, we laugh, we were the brokest kids at TCU. <laughs> when we rode around in his car, I literally had to hang my head out the window like Ace Ventura's pet, pet detective. <laughs> because in the wintertime, when he turned on the heat, the exhaust would come through the, the heaters. Sounds dangerous. Uh, you know, anyway, I, I think also growing up, understanding what the value of a dollar is, I think is really important. Um, yeah. And um, and Will and I being in the positions that we were in, we did, we valeted cars. We we knocked, literally walked around the neighborhood of our college, knocking on windows and started frog window cleaning. And I went and cleaned windows with Will. And you know what? Oh, wow. While all of our friends that had wealthy families were drinking beer and watching TV. Will and I were working. And uh, I actually think that has something to do with where we are today. 
That was actually what I was going to ask you. Do you think that that approach, seems like you've instilled that on your son for sure. Did that approach change or influence your investing style? It seems even like the way you look at macro trends has to do with like knowing the value of a dollar. Yeah, I, <clears throat> that, that same desire to understand and learn, um, it still burns, you know, pretty brightly today. Um, but there are things I really wish I knew a lot about and that, believe it or not, as life moves on and you have multiple businesses, you're running your family office, you've got ch- children everywhere, yet you really have to struggle to take control of your calendar to, to be able to develop yourself more. And really, just recently, like three weeks ago, I looked at my – Did you have you ever played bingo, Ryan? Yeah, yeah. So – you, you, you know, you get across, you know, diagonally up, down. But you ever you ever played this game called Blackout Bingo where you had to cover the whole card? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my assistant has been playing Blackout Bingo with my schedule. <laughs> and so I just had to stop it. But those kinds of things where I said, okay, from now on, nothing will ever be scheduled on a Friday for the rest of my life. And, oh, amazing. And it was empowering to kind of take back my schedule controlling me. I need to control my schedule. And so yeah. I think doing things like that and making room for your ability to learn and read and actually process instead of going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, you know, and you're not actually doing great work when you're doing that. So then where did you go from there after you, you said you wanted to try to find a hedge fund or work at a hedge fund? What was the next step? No, I, I wanted, I wanted to advise hedge funds on event driven strategies and Bear Stearns at the time had a um, had an amazing uh, corporate infrastructure with the with the entrepreneurship that they had at the firm. If you worked at Goldman Sachs, it was a regional coverage list. So if I worked at Goldman Sachs in Texas, the the asset management firms in Texas, those were the people I was assigned to cover. At Bear Stearns, if you um, if you wanted to cover someone in London or in Minsk or in Moscow that had passed money and I'm under laundering, of course, you could cover anyone in the world as long as they didn't have an account at Bear Stearns uh, prior to you calling them. So Bear Stearns was this really entrepreneurial place. And, um, and they also had an amazing risk arbitrage department that was proprietary. Um, so when you look at mergers and acquisitions, corporate spinoffs, bankruptcies, they did great work. And so kind of instilling yourself in, into the event-driven world uh, was a lot of fun. And I figured out a few things that others hadn't figured out uh, that helped us make our clients a lot of money. <laughs> and um, and that's, that just, again, like uh, it fueled the, fueled the fire that was already burning. Yeah. Well, like, how do you think that you had that edge to figure out those, those things that others weren't really looking at? Were you looking at it from a different angle or perspective? Yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you the most interesting one. Uh, do you remember, you may be too young, but um, do you remember when there was this company called 3Com and it owned Palm computers or yeah. computing? It was the first PDAs that, that predated the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so the Palm Pilot was really the first PDA that was kind of your personal digital assistant. And it, and again, it went, I didn't have yeah, all the functions I had on the iPhone, same, same thing. But <clears throat> what 3Com decided was that if they spun out Palm, uh, that, that, they, that, the, that the value of one plus one would equal more than two, right? The, the breakup of the company would be, be worth more than the whole. So they spun out 10% of, of Palm. Um, so they issued everyone that had 
three com shares as of a record date, you ended up with, you know, um, one tenth of Palm and it traded. So the idea was at some point in time, they were going to spin out the other 90%. Well, as you can imagine, um, to create three com X Palm, um, you would basically buy your three com share and you would short a Palm share in the spinoff ratio so you could create a hold co or the three com X Palm for a certain number. And there was no borrow on Palm because only 10% of it was outstanding. 90% was still with, with three com. So what the risk arbitrageurs did is they went out, this might be too uh, technical, but it's really interesting. Um, what they did is they went out and, and put this position on. They were creating 3Com, I remember, at like 5 or $6 a share when it was trading at like 11 Oh, wow. And so the idea was once the spinoff happened, that the remaining company, 3Com, was trading at like five times earnings and it should be 10 So it, the idea was you could, you could like kind of get you – could, you could avoid ri- the risky – Palm because it's going to be very volatile because it's a high growth company and you can own three com at, at a multiple that you knew was going to trade higher in the end. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening was a short squeeze in Palm happened. You couldn't borrow Palm. And so um, they were buying people in. So Palm was going up. Three com was actually going down. So that spread that was a $6 three com number went from six to five to four to three to two to one, and then it went negative. You could actually create three calm at a negative number if somehow you could borrow palm. And so I thought about back then, the settlement cycle um, for stocks was five days and for options was three days. And so I started trying to think through, well, the, the spin date was coming this number was going wildly negative and you could not break SEC rules, right? You can't make it short something. You, you'll literally put, you know, give you a civil fine. You lose your job. You get thrown in jail, whatever, whatever you do. So you can't break the law. But there was not a law in selling a call option on Palm that was deep in the money, i.e. giving you the same net short position in Palm. It would take three days to settle. And when it settled, you'd be immediately... Um, called away from you because it was in the money and they would that that process would create a short position and that would take five days to settle oh wow so i could create an eight business day position <laughs> that was within the law <clears throat> yeah so when three common palm got within eight days of the spin we put on massive positions by doing this <laughs> with some of my clients in london and we literally printed money legally Wow. It sounds like what's going on with the meme stocks on steroids right now. <laughs> You're like way, way early on that. But what that also did was open the door to um, really, really talented asset managers that I hadn't met um, that were really adept in risk arbitrage. They all of a sudden realized that I was not the usual salesman that would just wait for the phone to ring and um, take orders from people and take them out to dinner. I didn't go out to dinner. I was too busy working, you know? So that's amazing. It's how, it's how I developed, I think a reputation for doing um, call it leading edge work in a world where there were a lot of smart people and I wasn't the smartest person in the world. I just tried to figure out uh, where there might be kind of holes in the wall. 
Well, it seems like you were thinking outside the box and beating people at their own game. How old are you at this point? Um, when Three Calm and Palm happened, I think I was about 27. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Plus or minus one. Uh, and, and that's the year that I made partner at Bear Stearns. I was the youngest partner ever at the time. I don't know if anyone's beat that, but <laughs> I don't think so. They made me a senior managing director at the age of 27. Jesus, that's impressive. Congrats. Well, congrats to the 27-year-old version of you. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> amazing. And then where did you go from there? And that you started started meeting more people from there? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just working on event-driven, bankruptcy spinoffs, M&A um, at Bear. And, um, and then I started, you know, meeting people like Dan Loeb and Parker Cullen and John Paulson. And we all became friends back then, working on some of these event-driven transactions. Um, and with Dan Loeb, our, our relationship exploded right in the beginning in such a positive way. <clears throat> there was a company that Bear Stearns was the banker for called First Plus Financial. And First Plus Financial was a company that lent high loan-to-value loans as second mortgages on homes. So if you, Ryan, if you had a mortgage on your house um, and you still needed some more money, you could borrow in a second mortgage up to 125% of the value of your home. And they would charge you like 10 or 11% interest for it. And the beauty of this company was they would, they would give it, they would issue a 30-year loan. They would do a discounted present value of your the profitability of your loan and they would book it all as a profit on day one it's just insane wow. yeah so dan and i were shorting this company with everything that we had <laughs> and bear was the banker and i had to sign a very legal document in our firm that said you realize that bear has a strong buy on the stock has a strong buy on the bonds we're the banker for the company and you are soliciting customers to actively start sell it if you're wrong, we could sue you. You can lose your job. This, that, sign here. They didn't think I'd sign it, and I signed it. No way. And sure enough, First Plus Financial, uh, you know, the, you'll, you won't believe this. The banker and the CEO for the company, which it was Dallas-based, mm -hmm. just walked into my office one day and sat on my couch. <laughs> and he says, I, I hear you're short-selling our company. You know, he says, what could I do to get the shorts to cover? And I was like, I can't believe you just asked me that, number one. No way. And number two, you should go sell the company. If it's really trading at four times earnings, you should sell this thing for 20, 20 times earnings and prove me wrong. I said, you have 26 PhDs working for you. You guys are nowhere near setting aside enough money for losses, and you're going to lose everything. Sure enough, that company went bankrupt. It went to zero. And when it hit just a few pennies, I bought Dan 10,000 shares in his name. And it's still to this day is hanging on the walls of his office. <laughs> so it's stories like that that just you, you actually get to see how the sausage is made. And that, that just think about this. Bear Stearns was the banker for First Plus Financial, for Cityscape Financial, for Amory, which was a vinyl siding company. All the same concepts. This is all the setup for the financial crisis in 2008. They were just yeah. doing high LTV, second lien lending um, with bad guys. And, uh, and Bears, Bears uh, analysts were, were pumping this stuff because they built a machine to, uh, to print money. 
Yeah, do you think that so they built, they set up like this system that was set, set up to fail because it seemed like the analysts had these blinders on that you didn't and you saw these problems with these companies ahead of time? Yeah, I mean, look, this analyst, Mike Diana, um, was a very high paid analyst at the firm because he drove so much corporate finance business, right? They did mortgage securitization of those high LTV loans. They issued bonds for the for the companies. They issued equity for the companies. They traded the company. Like it was a money machine for Wall Street as long as it didn't blow up. Unfortunately, it blew up because they were really bad at modeling it. But the interesting thing was, I also saw how Wall Street kind of deflected the bullets that it should have been catching. Mm-hmm. And it was they had a strong buy on the stock. And then when when the shit started hitting the fan. They, they, the company hired Bear Stearns to quote, explore strategic alternatives. So their rating went from strong buy to we can't talk about it anymore. And that was it. It was over. Wow. They never had to go from strong buy to sell to apologize. They just said, we're hired by the company now. We can't talk about it anymore. And by the way, it happened across Wall Street. I just happened to work at a firm where I saw it happen. And then how did that, your relationship with that firm kind of go after that? You know, the, the top of the firm, Ace Greenberg is a very honorable man. Um, and Ace was my uh, my mentor. And I, I say mentor. He's not my mentor. I didn't talk to Ace every day. I was I was yet an underling, uh, even though I was a senior MD in Dallas. Um, I'm not sure he knew exactly who I was. But what I'm saying <laughs> to look up to I, had, I admired I admired him for how he built the firm, for giving it the entrepreneurial culture, for allowing someone like me to go against the firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, exp- and explain why, and also take all the risk for doing so. Um, but, I, I, you know, I just think even in Wall Street of today, think about what they're doing with China. 12% of Wall Street revenue comes from China. They know that Chinese companies make up their numbers. Every banker on the street knows it. They know that no one can rely on any of the financial data that any of the Chinese companies give. They know that China is our mortal enemy. They know that China will beg borrow, steal, uh, coerce, bribe. They'll do anything they can to, to get a leg up on the Westerners. And yet Wall Street can't wait to underwrite another Chinese deal to, to earn a paycheck that year for something they know will blow up later because Wall Street has short-termism and they just want to check. And so I think that greed and avarice is still pervasive across Wall Street today. We need real leadership. Yeah. And do you, like, it seems like we're even just in that short-term greed, we're willing to do things that could very negatively affect us. You're very vocal on China and some of the consequences we could face there. Um, do you think there's a, there's a solve to that or anything that we could do? Like you almost want us to like have not have nothing to do with China at all as um, instead of, you know, and you said 12% right now is what we trade with them. I mean, Beijing 2022 feels like um, Berlin, 1936 to me, I think it is absolutely insane. Our level of engagement and appeasement was such an evil, rotten regime. I just can't, I can't believe we interface with them. And you think about the U.S. national security complex, you think about the, the National Security Council, you think about the Pentagon, you think about the Fed, Treasury, uh, the U.S. trade rep, when you look across the various um, presidential cabinet level posts, everyone knows China's the enemy. Read the director of national intelligence's report that was put out puts out every March. 
They don't talk about strategic competition. They talk about the enemy and our biggest threat. Yeah. And yet Wall Street, there's a schism because Wall Street has 12% of their revenue there. Bloomberg News, that's their growth area. They're not, they're going to come after anyone that's negative on China. So yeah. it's this, like, I've said this publicly, if U.S. national security was left up to Wall Street, we'll all be speaking Chinese tomorrow. It seems like they're only they're, they're the probably the greatest existential threat we have today. Yeah, it's it's we need leadership. We need we need real leadership to make some very difficult decisions. That's why we need you to run for office at some point, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, you could you could be president. Thank you for saying so. <laughs> I'll start donating to your campaign eventually. So then, where did that lead you next after this whole chapter of your life? Kind of with that, did you go and create your own firm after this? Yeah, so so I did. My my goal was I needed to save up a certain amount of capital, and and in my mind, um, it was ten million dollars I needed to save up in savings uh, before I was to go try to launch my own event driven firm. Was it because you wanted to be able to invest enough of your own capital? I wanted enough to be able to. Um, have enough money. If it didn't go well, um, I was going to put half of my money in the fund and I was going to keep the other half to operate from because you go from earning a great paycheck on Wall Street to for the first few years to burning money because you're hiring staff. You don't have any money raised yet. You have to have analysts, right? You have to do compliance. You have to have a, a pay rent. You have to do all the things that you do and run a business. So that swing between a big positive net income and a big negative net income, I mean, that's that's a leap that one has to take. Now, I'm sure rich people do it all the time and it's no big deal. Uh, for someone that started at zero, that was a very big deal to give up um, a great paying Wall Street job. So 2001, uh, I took a job with Leg Mason uh, to to run their Texas operation from, from a, basically to start it from a greenfield. Uh, perspective. And I love my boss there. His name was Tom Mulroy. He ran the institutional group at Lake Mason. And I met Chip Mason and Jim Brinkley. And um, they were they were very positive on, um, you know, moving forward with setting up a Texas operation. I signed a five-year deal with them. And I told them, in five years and one day, I will start my own firm. But in five years, I will have this operation running, you know, like, like a clock. And, and that's in it. that's what happened. Oh, amazing. And you raised the capital that you needed to be able to move on. And were you still close with Dan at that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still, I built these friendships over, over a lifetime and I'm still close with everyone that I was close to back then. Amazing. And then when you started your own firm, was that Heyman? I started Heyman in um, January of 06. Okay. And that was exactly five years after you told them you would. Yeah. And that's kind of what made you probably like the most notorious moment was in you, about in 2005, you said you started noticing the housing crisis coming. Yeah. And this was largely due to my reading of Alchemy of Finance. You know, you saw home prices were over three standard deviations from the mean. And historically, home prices and and income had moved in a perfect parallel fashion since the 1950s. And you had all of a sudden home prices diverging over three three sigmas from, from the mean. So either incomes had to, had to almost double or home prices had to drop 30 40% to bring that back into into line. And my guess was home prices were probably going to collapse given the, the, crap, the crap that was being originated out there. Amazing. Yeah. And, and you noticed that people were not paying their first mortgages and you guys were, and you had raised enough money at that point to, 
to, sh- to create a short on that market. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, um, you know, it's, it was, it was, it was a fantastic start, um, to asset management. And, um, thank, thankfully I happen to be focused, um, where I should be, where I should have been focused. So I, 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 cre- I credit a lot of that to luck, a lot of that to perseverance, a lot of that to just digging in and trying to understand how those markets, markets worked. I never transacted in mortgage-backed securities. I didn't understand how the tranches worked. And when someone tried to explain to me that there was a synthetic mortgage market, um, that was a that was also a mind-blowing experience where I had to go read a few books to understand exactly what that meant. Well, it seems like education has been such a theme in your life. Like every time you don't know something, you go feverishly, maniacally, like research it and read it, and then try to benefit off of that uh, or see how you can apply what you've learned. Like, how would you, um, is it, are there any things that you see that are wrong with the current way we teach financial literacy or give access to financial literacy? And what do you think we could do better, especially in maybe even the school systems in America? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, when you were in high school, did you, um, did you have a class called home economics? No, okay. <laughs> I think, I, I think that I've, and every time I hear that term, it sounds like something that our parents had. Yeah. Well, um, they were phasing it out when I was in high school, <clears throat> which was in the, in the late eighties. And so I think with beyond a shadow of a doubt, we should be teaching home economics in junior high and in high school. We need to teach people how to balance a checkbook, how to open a bank account, how to think about expenses versus income, how to manage savings, how to think about compounded savings. If someone had ever taught me that in high school, you know, just think how much money you could have saved uh, when you're working, if you just set aside some for saving, some for spending, just teach people what to do with their money um, when they're kids. Um, I think it's it's vital. Instead, we're I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rant here. We're like go for it. teaching eight year olds how to be victims of critical race theory uh, because they're white. This is insanity. I mean, I've seen some of these teachers. I can't believe what I'm hearing. And so let's teach practical reality. Let's teach people how to be kind. Let's teach people how to be virtuous. Let's teach people how not to be a racist. But don't teach kids that they're victims um, from the moment that they understand what the word victim is. This is just insanity. And this indoctrination has to stop. So I think, again, my view uh, is teaching people home economics and how to operate basic things like checking uh, and checking balances and, and debits and credits in your checking book, checkbook, I think would go a long way to teaching financial literacy in this country. Yeah, I think it opens it up and it opens up to opportunities like your, you were experienced just later in life. And it might have let people realize like, oh, there's this whole world of finance that I could potentially enter into just from learning those basics. I think that they should definitely be teaching like even like a Tony Robbins style one hour of mental health a day. Um, he could design the curriculum. You're right. Think about how positive Tony Robbins is. Like you read his book, Awaken the Giant Within. Yeah. And and you read, you know, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you only have your kids read two books, have them read those two books. Like, and they should teach a class on that and teach kids how to be positive, not so critical and negative and, you know, class warfare, all this crazy shit is is taking our kids in the wrong direction like give them positivity give them hope and give them knowledge and make them hungry for it don't don't let them memorize stuff make them think about things like think about we should be teaching grand strategy classes to kids in high school and, and college 
You know, you shouldn't have to go to you shouldn't have to get into Yale to go see Professor Gaddis to think about grid strategy. That can be taught in many other universities. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you think about technology, the teacher could just basically play a video of the person speaking or a Tony Robbins video. And if we open up their minds at a younger age to all these big things that they can do and help them with their mental health, I think we can prevent a lot of the class warfare that you're seeing today in this division that we have in politics. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not saying don't talk about racism. Don't talk about virtue. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying teach it differently. Yeah. Or, te- or teach us to have like a more of an open mind so we could stop it, the cycle of it and uh, learn about it differently. You know, there's a stat that I, I was just with these people that are starting this new university in, in Austin. Um, and I was with Joe Lonsdale and Neil Ferguson. Oh, I read about that. Yeah. A whole bunch of people. I was there at the kind of kickoff mm-hmm. party. The Austin University. And, yeah. And hearing what the reason why they want to open a proper dialectic. Neil Ferguson said, like the Oxford that he went to in the 80s, where, where you could draw up a logical argument for a, a problem or an issue, you could discuss that argument in class without fear of being canceled or jumped on by this by the staff the class the teacher the anyone else there's a stat today 76 percent of kids in college are too afraid to speak their mind in class for fear of being canceled or labeled a racist or this or that wow like that is a negative working environment it is negative so yeah that wouldn't be okay in any working environment in fact a lot of Companies are starting to ban discussion of politics and things like that in the workplace because it's counterproductive. Yeah, you want to know. So when my mom was a flight attendant, there were only three things that were strictly forbidden from flight attendants speaking uh, or discussing with their with their customers. And it was um, religion, mm-hmm. um, money, and politics. Everything else was, was wide open. <laughs> Everything, everything else. And they probably got along perfectly fine. <laughs> everything else was great. Yeah. And the, the relationship in the business probably did okay. Yeah. I think if we, if we definitely taught our kids some of that, it would definitely increase the wealth um, that they potentially could have. And the mental health issues that we have right now and are, are super horrible right now. And I think that would definitely, we could give them a one hour session each day yeah. on how to do better in that. And do you think we could do better by like adjusting some of the rules for accreditation processes and, um, you know, giving more access or teaching people better about how they could invest in alternatives types of investments? Because right now it seems like you either invest in a mutual fund or an ETF or you just go, you know, and bank it all on individual stocks. And it's hard to compete with guys like you and um, Dan Loeb and um, people who have, you know, analysts working for them who have like they're spending a hundred million dollars a year on research um, you can't compete with, with that. Right. I, I think, um, what, what's happening with Michael Wang's Prometheus and this concept of, um, the liberalization of access to private equity, to venture, to hedge funds is something that's absolutely necessary. Um, that, that, that gap, that chasm, that friction that existed for so long needs to be narrowed and or eliminated and, you know, you and I were discussing a little uh, offline, you know, the fact that um, any Tom, Dick or Harry can go buy a Shiba coin. I'm probably going to butcher this or a Dogecoin or whatever these things are that are like digital tulips, um, you know, but but yet they're prohibited from investing 
in a private equity firm because their net worth is not enough um, is is kind of like you know making sure the ladder's not there for the small guy to climb up for the next few stories. Um, it's letting them riverboat gamble with crazy things, but not allowing them them to invest with professional investors is a little crazy. So uh, from a regulatory perspective, we've got to uh, we've got to close that gap uh, one way or the other or both. Uh, and I think uh, what Prometheus is doing is going to be fantastic. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of insane. Like you can gamble on one or two stocks or these coins that seem, like you said, tulips. And uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I can't invest in something that is run by professionals who are hedging their risk as much as they can and investing in some of the with the best data in the world. I'd love to hear a little bit about your new firm and kind of like what led you to even want to create the conservation equity management? Uh, number one, I've always been an environmentalist at heart. My favorite my favorite place in the world to be is outside. It's not to be sitting where I'm sitting now. Sorry, we'll, we'll let you go soon, I promise. Yeah, so I think there's so much to be learned uh, by getting your kids, your friends, your you know, everyone outside more often. And I am a huge um, tree hugger slash environmentalist. And, and, and I want to teach people how to be proper stewards of the land. Um, you know, do everything that you would do to promote, um, a variety of, uh, biodiversity and, and raise the value of ecosystems on properties. And, and, and it came to me at the end of last year, at the end of 2020, um, when, um, the fed had, had expanded the balance sheet. We, they had, literally printed 40% more broad money in the United States in 18 months than was there 18 months before. That's never happened before. So when we talk about inflation being transitory, I don't even know what that means. We're going to, I'm a monetarist at heart. So I think we're going to see the price level basically move 30 to 40% Yeah, or more in some areas, right. That are more sensitive. Um, but when I think about that and how many conversations have you had with your friends and, you know, if you're a fiduciary, if you're the head of a household or if you have friends that are concerned about losing the purchasing power if cash is sitting in their bank account, it clearly doesn't buy near as much today as it bought two years ago. You and I both know that. Whether you're buying a house or you're fueling up your car, or you're going to buy food or you're going out to a restaurant, yeah, man, it does not travel as far as it traveled two years ago. So when I think about the next decade or next 15 years, I think about the macro trends in our country you have high cost, high tax jurisdictions. I call them mismanaged jurisdictions like New York, like New York City, like Connecticut, like New Jersey, like the entire West Coast in California. The, clearly, those jurisdictions are moving people out and they're moving to places like Texas, Tennessee and Florida. Like that is a fact. Now, rich people can move to Aspen. They can move to Wyoming, they, but they can't move Fortune 500 companies to Aspen. Right? It just can't happen. So when I think about the nonlinearity of certain population movements and the fact that this is a secular trend and it's going to happen, I think, for the next decade or more. What I was thinking is that's also going to create a nonlinear and non-trivial number of severe environmental impacts. So this is irrespective of how you think about carbon neutrality. This is how you think about true impacts. So impacts of wetlands or streams, creeks, rivers, or endangered species habitats, where there's a proper architecture for the system, those impacts are going to be major, massive in those areas where the population migration is nonlinear. So starting with the macro thought, but getting to a micro thought where you say, you can now merge finance and conservation 
and mitigating those impacts. And it's the greatest place to have your capital, I think, um, to avoid this degradation of your purchasing power via inflation. I'd much rather own rural lands within two and a half hour radius of population centers that are going to expand like crazy over the next decade because the rural land will appreciate, I think, much more than private crypto, Dogecoin or Bitcoin or whatever you want to buy these these crypto things um, or gold. Gold's not moving anywhere because everyone's buying crypto. At some point in time, I think you're going to see rural land uh, move in a major way. And I think you're going to see um, I think you're going to see these impacts happen in a major way. So why not start an a asset management firm, a private equity firm called Conservation Equity Management, round up some of the, the best people in that business and uh, join forces and, and go tackle these problems. This is like a midlife crisis in such a positive way, right? It's like, uh, I've already done what I'm going to do in the hedge fund world. And now something that I really, truly love to do is to wake up every day and go look at some of either these broken properties, these impacts, or some of this rural land that that is uh, maybe an off-market transaction that, that I know what we can do. I know what we can do to enhance it. I know how we can bring um, a better environment to the world and teach people how to maintain those environments, which is also part of the process. So I'm really excited to kind of do good, do do good by doing well, and um, and and this isn't some kind of ESG greenwashing. Like what I'm what I'm going to do is going to be tangible. You're going to be able to see it, and you're going to be able. It's measurable uh, how I'm going to increase the value of the ecosystem and the biodiversity. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been reading a lot about how you can even how people even measure impact investing when they you know invest in certain companies that are fighting climate change or whatnot. But it seems like what you're doing is like a much more hands-on physical approach to this. So would the idea be that as the land increases in value and you can protect it and conserve it, that the investment essentially goes up? Correct. So everything we'll be doing has a rural land component. You'll all, you'll always get that appreciation. And on top of that, we're going to be engaging in ecosystem services raising levels of biodiversity, using conservation easements on certain pieces of property to release to release credits from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to force those impactors, uh, like the ports, like the rails, like the highway departments that are that are, might be ruining streams, creeks, rivers, or native species habitats. We're going to make them pay and pay dearly for that, and we're going to institutionalize this business. So just think about this, Ryan. In the state of Texas alone, you mentioned that you had done a documentary in, in Louisiana and, and how much they're losing. The state of Texas loses one square mile of land per, per day to industrialization, 640 acres a section, every single day. And that's insane. And can you, do, you, do you think there's anything we can do about it? That's not going to slow down. But what we've got to do is be better stewards of working lands, of lands that are farms, ranches, things that are that are um, timberland, you know, rangeland. We need to teach people how to be great stewards of that land, how to own it, how to enjoy it, how to be outside, how to not sell that land to a developer that wants to put four houses per acre on it and ruin it. Uh, in my opinion, uh, we've built a mouse trap that's going to be really phenomenal going forward. 
I admire you for doing that. Thank you for talking to us about that new endeavor because I think it's so needed. Um, you see things happening and no one's really being held accountable. And it seems like this is an area where you can see the open free market come in and kill two birds with one stone, get a return on their investment, but also hold people accountable to protecting these areas. You know, we, we did a film in Puerto Rico where they still have toxic drinking water after Hurricane Maria. You know, if you guys were there, you would make sure that their rivers were clean and that the land was not poisoning their people. Exactly right. Things like that. Um, we can we can do a lot with things like that. And this is the first time I've ever kind of really talked about this quasi publicly. So I'm, 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 I'm glad for you to share this with the Prometheus crowd. That's exciting. I appreciate you talking to, about it. And you must be super excited. It gives you a change of pace from the traditional hedge fund world. Yeah, it's not, I don't have to do honk calls with Hong Kong at three in the morning anymore. And I'll tell you, my, uh, my general disposition has already improved dramatically. I'm a much better person with my family and friends. And I, my life has already dramatically improved. Going, I spent all day yesterday at a, at a land summit with JP Morgan, their, their first annual here in the heart of Texas. And, you know, just being around a, a like-minded group of folks was just uh, uh, really refreshing. And it's, I have hope because I've met so many people that, that are um, this enthusiastic about what we're doing. Yeah. And I think that you, you taking in innovative approaches is one of the ways that we're going to be able to tackle climate change and some of the environmental issues. I've been reading John Doerr's book, um, speeding scale about how he thinks we're going to tackle climate change again to net zero. Um, and you know, it's amazing that you're, you're doing this as, um, have you, did you, was there something that triggered this inspiration or was it kind of the idea that you wanted to kind of combine some of your passions and your interests? Yeah, it was, um, it was both. It was kind of the merger of my macro view of where I want my family's money for the next 10, 15 years or more. Um, and then meeting with some of the people that, that I had been working with on improving the biodiversity and raising the value of the ecosystem at properties that I currently own. And I sat on the patio with this, the godfather of, of mitigation in Texas, a guy named Terry Anderson. And uh, we had just closed on a transaction in December of 2020. And Terry was using you know, uh, money from Connecticut um, from a group of fellows that are really, really good at this called uh, Lime Timber, uh, and they they run a they run a U.S. wide uh, timber investment management operation, a team or t organization, and they were doing a little bit of mitigation here and there. And Terry was engaging it, and I said, Terry, you know, why don't you become the principal, and um, why don't we uh, raise money in Texas for Texas and the surrounding four states and go do this down here because the macro forces are all telling me that now's the time. And he looked at me and he said, I'm in. And um, that was that just a pivotal moment where I said, let's, let's go do this. I'm ready. Wow. That's amazing. It's super inspiring. Like, and could you explain maybe someone who doesn't really understand what does it mean to raise the biodiversity of an area of land that you may own or you may invest in? So imagine, imagine if you have a, um, I bought a property that, that was a uh, old timber forest that had been neglected for decades. The, the prior owners lived in the state of Tennessee. This potential piece, this, this piece of property was in East Texas. And um, imagine when trees grow to the ground and you don't run 
uh, controlled burns through the forest and the limbs start touching the ground. Uh, all of the, all of the diverse plant species, um, and succulents that could grow on the forest floor get snuffed out, right. By overgrowth, by lack of sunlight, because the canopy can't, it can't be penetrated by the sun. If you start doing things where you come to a piece of property, you run controlled burns through the forest, you limb the trees up, you selectively thin to let um, sunlight onto the forest floor. You literally create life that otherwise was not there. And when you have species of birds that haven't been there because they didn't care to be there, there was no food. You have deer, you have all kinds of native animals repopulate that ecosystem just starts to get better and better and better. And then you start planting flowers. You bring, you bring bird houses, bird boxes, and put them on the trees. You bring bat boxes and put bats in the trees. You bring in all of the native species that used to be there. And you plant grass so that you can recharge the aquifers. And all of a sudden, the entire ecosystem is functioning at such a high level. And when you show up there, it's functioning at such a low level that it's almost dead. Um, you just have to see it. You literally have to put your boots on the ground. The guy that does most of our fire burning or control burns, literally his name is Rip. He's 70 plus years old. He wears overalls and he's the best controlled burner in, in East Texas. And, and if I asked you to draw a picture of Rip, you could do it. <laughs> I feel like I need to come make a documentary about this. Maybe we could do that next. I mean, listen, come out and put your boots on the ground and let me show you how we can dramatically improve our environment. It's, it is unbelievably fun to do. Actually, well, I'll take you up on that. I'll come with a camera crew and we'll shoot a really cool piece about all this stuff. I'll tell you, we're, we're going to be burning December, January, and February. You need to come. When we we're should burning. because uh, no, so I think, Gary, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's one of the issues that we have with California because I hear in California, we have some of the worst uh, fire seasons and the air uh, quality is worsening every year. And it's because they are not doing kind of some of the things that you're talking about. You know what? That you get to people that um, become so ideologically um, broken uh, that they don't understand the good from the bad. The green, the green people in California will will not allow controlled burns. They won't allow lifting up of the trees. You're not allowed to touch them. Well, guess what? When the fires ha happen, the real fires happen. They're going to burn the whole goddamn forest down, and that's what's happening. Yeah, right. And we're losing, we're losing all of the forests. The people that are controlling California are complete idiots. They are literally. And by the way, go back to January of 2020. A Berkeley professor um, wrote a piece about how they must engage in controlled burns, or the forest is going to burn down. Uh, and it was prescient. It was coming from Cal Berkeley. Um, I mean, as left as left goes. And yet the people running the show still didn't listen. So when you do this right, you can't believe the amount of life you help create. It's unbelievable. Well, yeah, I'd love to come out and film that. And yeah, now we've lost most of Malibu to the burns. We've lost so much of Northern California. Uh, it seems like what you're doing in Texas is only going to increase the ecosystem there um, so much more. And it's going to add a lot of value to the places that you do this, invest in. Yeah. And look, you can... That you, if you do, if you if you handle the the especially the mitigation side of investing in the in environmental mitigation, you actually have a net positive. You have the corporations or the or the um, uh, or the commercial entities that are that are engaging in the impact. You make them pay the price, and they should be paying the price. Um, so 
it's a um, it's a win win win. Well, and the corporations just have a cost of development that's higher. I think we're not educating the people enough on um, how we can actually physically change it and why investing in it is so important. Agreed. Thank you so much for your time today, Kyle. I really appreciate it. I can't wait for us to keep learning more. I'd like to keep talking more about the firm that you guys are building and investing in and solving our Earth's problems. Well, thank you for the time, Ryan. It was a good talk.